2006, January 11th, and Observatory 1008, the Ohio State University campus, Astronomy 162, Winter Quarter. Lecture 7 will begin in just a moment. Okay, let's get going. Good morning, everybody. We're going to start out with a uh, little finger exercise to get everyone going for the morning. Today's finger exercise question is based on yesterday's lecture and, of course, the lecture from the day before. So there's a couple pieces here. On average, the more distant a star becomes, would it be expected to be... Let's try reading this again. Let's try reading it. (laughs) The more distant a star is, on average, it would be expected to have A, a smaller proper motion and no parallax, D, a larger parallax and a larger proper motion, C, a smaller parallax and a smaller proper motion, D, a larger parallax and smaller proper motion, E, a smaller parallax and a larger proper motion. I think I got all the possibilities covered there, mostly. So, pick your answer, A, B, C, D, or E. Pay no attention to the man behind the screen. Thank you. Okay, having picked your answer, A, B, C, D, or E, compare your answer to the people around you, see if you agree with it. I'll give you about a minute to talk about it. And then we'll check the answer. Okay, here the chatter has gone to a minimum. How many, uh, how many of you changed your answer as a consequence of talking about it with people? It's good. Good, that's exactly what I like to see. Of course, I really like you to all just know the answer like that, but this is the way you learn is often not so much by what you know as how you can explain it to someone else, and halfway through the explanation you go, oh, yeah, maybe you're right. We really teach each other more than we learn from listening to me yammer. So this question requires you to put together a couple different ideas. You need to understand parallax, and you need to understand proper motion and how it depends upon distance. So how many of you said the answer was A? As an object gets further away, it has a smaller smaller proper motion, but no parallax. How many of you said it's B? It has a large parallax and a large proper motion. C, small parallax and small proper motion. D, large parallax and smaller proper motion or E, smaller parallax and large proper motion. Oh, come on, which button is it? It is C. And the reason it is C is, remember, first of all, parallax is the apparent angle moving back and forth because of the Earth's motion. The lo- smaller the parallax, the larger the distance. So that, one is, that one's given. That one pretty much tells you it's got to be either A, C, or E, because larger distance, smaller parallax. But what about proper motion? 
Well, on average, stars are all moving near the sun at about the same rough speed. So on average, there's about as many stars moving across your line of sight as moving towards you. So if things are moving more or less on average across the line of sight, as you get further away, remember the little experiment we did with the lamp yesterday, the people in the front row saw a very large angle that the artificial star moved through, whereas the people in the back saw a much smaller angle move through because of their greater distance, that motion makes a smaller angle on the sky. It makes a long, thin triangle instead of a short, fat triangle. So the answer is that on average, as a star gets further away, its parallax certainly gets smaller, but on average, its proper motion also gets smaller, if it is a star like the other stars around us. A little bit of a different problem than we've asked before, but one I think that, again, is, is one of those that puts, puts a lot of ideas together, and of course, a lot of you did very good. So it's a good sign. You're starting to pick the stuff up. Okay. Last two lectures, we've talked about sort of gross properties of stars. How far away are they, and how do they appear to be moving on the sky? Do they appear to be moving across the plane of uh, the sky, proper motion, or are they moving towards or away from us, radial motion? And of course, we put all three of those pieces together, the proper motion and angle, the distance found through the parallax, and the radial velocity. I know how it's actually moving through space in three dimensions. But I haven't learned anything about the star itself, just some consequence of how it happens to be moving. We now want to start turning to the properties intrinsic physical to the stars themselves. The importance of proper motions and distances were to be able to try to get things like turning these angular measurements into physical measurements. So the distance is always important, but now we turn to the stars themselves. And the first property we're going to start with the stars is the most obvious apparent property when you look out at the night sky. Stars are bright. And so today's lecture is on stellar brightness and what we mean by stellar brightness. Now, some of this will look familiar from last week when we talked about the properties of lights, but now I want to put specifically information about stars. So one of the key ideas we're going to look at today is that we're going to give you the definition of the luminosity of a star. It's going to be now the total energy output by that star, and it's going to be a physical property of the star. It's independent of distance. It's two very important pieces. How luminous a star is, is completely independent of whether it's a near star or far star. It's a physical property of the star. We're also going to talk about the apparent brightness. This is the observable property we see standing here on Earth. This is how bright a star appears to be given its distance, how far away it is, and its intrinsic brightness, its luminosity. Stars are not all the same luminosity, so different stars appear different ways. And we've got to sort this out, and the way we sort this out is we have to know the distance. Ultimately, that's what it comes down to, is we've got to know the distance to tell what we're looking at. Finally, I want to say a little bit about how we actually measure stellar brightnesses in reality. Some of you saw me fooling around with some artifacts. I brought in some measuring devices here. They'll sort of demonstrate how this works astronomically. And we're going to introduce the idea of stellar magnitudes. It's a way of measuring brightnesses over very large ranges that you're going to encounter in your book. And occasionally, I'll, I'll let magnitudes trip off my tongue during the course of these lectures. It's a diff more difficult to deal with mathematically, but it gives you some idea of how we actually go about this practice of measuring stellar brightnesses and what the ranges look. So today's topic is starlight, star bright. Just how bright are stars? How do we quantify that? So we want to ask a question and get an answer. And today's question, today's lecture comes down to answering a single question, how bright is a star? There's two ways I can express stellar brightness. One of these is intrinsic luminosity. 
Intrinsic luminosity tells me how much power the star is actually putting out. And I measure that in watts. It's distance independent. It's a property of the star. A star producing a luminosity of 10 to the 26 watts will produce 10 to the 26 watts whether I'm orbiting it, like the sun, or whether that star is in a galaxy far, far away. doesn't matter. It's an intrinsic property. The analogy is with a light bulb. If you look at the top of a light bulb, there's a little, little label inscribed on the top that says, you know, Westinghouse or GE, 100 watt soft light or something like that. That 100 watts bit is related to the luminosity of that light. Obviously, a 100 watt light bulb puts out in round numbers about twice the light of a 50 watt light bulb. And that light bulb is going to be a 100 watt light bulb whether it's sitting in your lampstand or whether it's in the next building. It's a property of that lamp. The problem with stars, of course, is they do not con come conveniently manufactured by the General, General Electric Corporation. They do not have little labels on top of them saying, I'm a 10 to the 26 watt star. So we have to, to derive this property, this luminosity, which is what we really want to know, it, by some other means. And the way we do that, the means which, by which we do that, is we have a second way of quantifying brightness. And this is the actual observable quantity. We want to measure how bright the star appears to be, its apparent brightness. It's how bright that star appears to be as we see it from a distance. We can't go up to the star. We can't always go the same distance from every star. We have to sit here on the Earth and look out at the universe. So how bright a star appears to us as we sit here on the Earth and use our telescopes or Hubble or whatever to measure the brightness of that star, that's called the apparent brightness. And it depends upon the distance to that star and, of course, how bright that star actually is. So once again, we see distance raise its ugly head. This is why distance is so important. If I don't know the distance, basically I, I barely know squat about the star. So intrinsic luminosity, or sometimes I'll just say luminosity all by itself, means how much power the star puts out. It's intrinsic to the object. It's a physical property of the star. Apparent brightness is what I see standing here on Earth. It's how bright the star appears to be. And its value is literally an accident of how far away that star happens to be plus how bright it really is. So there's two parts to an apparent brightness. It's good to keep these things in mind. Let's look at how we relate these. Of course, they're not two separate quantities. They're linked. And the way it's linked is through the so-called inverse square law of brightness. The inverse square law of brightness is simply a consequence of geometry. If I have a light source, here's my canonical 100-watt light bulb, and I'm standing some distance away from it, as I move out in distance away from the star, the light rays spread out into a sphere. Now, of course, my PowerPoint drawing here, I don't have really fancy drawing tools, so I can't draw these little bits here as sections of the surface of a sphere, so we'll let just little square tiles as a stand-in for it. It's good enough for what we're doing. If I go distance one unit away, one meter, one parsec, whatever, doesn't really matter, I call the area in, of that little reference tile there one, one square centimeter, one square meter, something. I measure the amount of light falling in that square meter. When I go out to distance two, twice as far away, that, those rays that define that sort of expanding volume of light moving outwards now tiles itself into four of those little squares. So now the same amount of light, the same number of photons, are now spread over four squares instead of over one square. Similarly, if I go out to a distance of three, I've now spread those rays of light, represented by the red lines, over three by three, or nine of those tiles. The total amount of photons going into that cone there is the same. There might be a thousand photons going in the cone. 
At a distance of one, I get a thousand photons per tile. At a distance of two, I get a thousand photons, but spread over four tiles, so I get 250 photons per tile. At distance of three, I've now taken my thousand photons and spread them over nine tiles. So I get, oh God, what is it, whatever one over nine is, about 111 photons per tile. So if I'm putting there and I put my eye down in one of those tiles, that light's going to appear fainter because a smaller fraction of those photons are falling in my eye. And so you can see that as I go out d times 0, d times 1 is 1 squared. d times 2, 2 squared is the area of 4. 3, 3 by 3 is area 9, and so on and so forth as I spread further and further out. So it's a natural consequence of geometry that brightness should drop as the distance squared. The further I go in distance, the more area I'm spread out in. And whenever you're dealing with something that's spread out in area, you immediately know it's going to go like the square of something. It's just given by the geometry. So the result is that I have an inverse square law of brightness. I can turn that cartoon and express it mathematically in a convenient form for me. The brightness is proportional to 1 over the distance squared. This thing that looks like a funny twiddly alpha is in fact called the proportional to sign. It says, I've basically ignored all the constants for the moment, all the other properties, and just focused in on the one thing that's changing, the distance. So I say brightness is proportional to 1 over distance squared. In words, what this means is the apparent brightness of a source is inversely proportional to the square of the distance from that source. The distance that you are, the observer, from that source. That's why we call it the inverse square law. We've seen inverse square laws all over the place. Gravity was an inverse square law. Guess what? Gravitational force falls off because you kind of have a sphere that the, uh, that the star or the planet is sitting in the middle of. And you can think of the gravitational force spread over that sphere. As you move further away, you're picking off a smaller fraction of the sphere like the square. So it's almost a natural geometric way of describing how things fall off as you move away from something. This works for brightness. This works very well. It's easy to see a car very, very far away. Its headlamps are as bright as they are. We'll assume that the headlamps aren't flickering or doing something stupid like that. So as the car is very far away, the headlamps appear very faint. But when the car gets brighter, its headlamps get brighter and brighter and brighter as the square of the distance closing between you. So as the car comes two times closer, its headlamps will appear four times brighter, two squared. If it gets 10 times closer, it's 10 squared or 100 times brighter. So this geometric fall off in brightness is very useful to us because if all that's happening that makes the object dim is simply the geometry of how far away it is, I have a way of linking how bright I see it from a distance to how bright it really is. I can link the apparent brightness to the intrinsic brightness, a.k.a. the luminosity. And it's exactly what we're going to do. The implications of the inverse square law for us, especially for stars, galaxies, quasars, whatever I'm looking at in astronomy, is that the for a source of a given luminosity, a fixed wattage for that source, the closer the source is to us, the brighter it appears to be. It's still 100 watts, or 10 to the 26 watts, or whatever its brightness is. But what I perceive, what it appears to me, gets brighter. I move it two times closer, it gets two squared, or four times in apparent brightness. Now, I'm going to be a little sloppy here. And the reason I'm going to be sloppy is because it's sort of common usage. Luminosity always talks about total intrinsic luminosity. Brightness, I'll often really mean apparent brightness. I'll often drop the word apparent 
just out of habit. So you sort of get used to it here. That's why I'm switching back and forth a bit. It's kind of get you used to the language. The other side of this, ex of this ex example, as the light source moves further away, the light gets spread out over a bigger area, and its brightness gets down. It goes fainter as the distance squared. So if I move a light source two times further away, it gets two squared or four times fainter. I move it 100 times further away, it gets 100 squared or 10,000 times fainter. And you can see that the amount it gets fainter grows very, very rapidly. One of your homework problems asks you to ask the question, we're sitting here on the Earth and we're looking at the sun. How far away do I have to move the sun so it's a trillion times fainter? Well, you need the inverse square law to do that. You need to look at how far away you've got to get before the light spread out over such a big sphere that you literally get one trillionth in your eye compared to what it is on the Earth. And it's simply the inverse square of the distance. So this is very important to us. It gives us a way of tying the apparent brightness to the luminosity by way of distance. So let's look in more, more detail at what we mean by apparent brightness. Apparent brightness is an example of an observable. It's what we actually measure. I cannot measure the luminosity of a star directly. I cannot look with my super telescope and read the label on the star. There is no label, per se. So as a consequence, I want to get the luminosity. It's the physical property. I need to know two things about it. I need to know how bright it is physically, and I need to know how far away it is. These are related through, not surprisingly, the inverse square. Oops, sorry. These are related through the inverse square law. So the luminosity, how bright it really is, and how far away it is, tells me what the apparent brightness of a star is going to be. And they're related through the inverse square law of brightness. Now I'm going to take that proportionality formula that I just showed you a couple slides back, and I'm now going to show you the explicit form of it with an equal sign in the case of stars to relate now brightness and luminosity. We call it, for lack of a better word, the brightness-luminosity relationship. It basically relates the apparent brightness of the source, which I'll call B, B for brightness, to the luminosity, if you will, the intrinsic brightness, how bright it really is, L, through the formula that B is equal to the luminosity divided by 4 pi times the distance squared. 4 pi distance squared, some of you will recognize, is the surface area of a sphere of radius D. So all I'm doing is taking that luminosity and spreading it over the surface of a sphere whose radius is the distance from me. And I, which, the way you could think about it is the light source is at the center of the sphere. I'm at a distance d out on the surface of that sphere, and I pick off just a little tiny piece of that immense sphere. Well, now think about it. The sphere is now parsecs across. I'm going to pick off a really tiny amount. That's why the stars look faint even though some of those stars may be intrinsically far more luminous than our own sun. So it's simply taking the inverse square law of brightness and showing you how you relate to the luminosity to the distance. And we can manipulate this formula in various ways to bring it into play for observing. And again, to put some words on what this formula means, at a given luminosity, a given stellar luminosity, the more distant that star or galaxy or quasar becomes, the fainter it appears to us on Earth as the square of its distance. This is kind of repetitious. We're sort of hammering the inverse square law of brightness down. But remember that square of the distance over and over again, just because the light's getting spread out on the surface of, a, a surface of an imaginary sphere. Questions about this before we dive on, because it's sort of the, the hammer of this point home. That's what the 
basic principle is, but appearances can be deceiving. The point about apparent brightness is that's what we see. When I walk out at night and I look at the sky, I see very, very bright stars, I see very, very faint stars, and everything in between. And what am I seeing? What do I actually know when I see there? The stars are so far away that I can't perceive depth. The 2D, mo the 2D to 3D projection trick I do with my eyes here, stereo vision, doesn't work even out to the moon. It really doesn't even work out to the stars at all. So if I see a star and I say, gee, that star is kind of brighter than the others, do I know whether it's really a really, really, really bright star? It's intrinsically luminous. Or is it just happened to be a really faint star and I'm just really close to it? I actually don't know just by looking. So if you see a star that looks bright, you don't really know anything about it. It may turn out that a really bright star is in fact just a really intrinsically faint star. It's a 10 watt light bulb right in your face, but the other star that looks really faint is a billion watt light bulb 10 kilometers away. It's going to look faint because it's far away, not because it really is a low luminosity source. So this, this sort of interplay between what things look like and how bright they are is hard to break. To break that, we have to know one of two things. Ideally, we would know the distance to the star. We'd measure its parallax or something like that. If I measure the distance, I just apply the inverse square law and I say, oh yeah, that little faint poopy looking thing over there, that's actually a billion times more luminous than the sun. And this bright thing here, eh, it's just a poopy little star and it's just in my face. It's really close. That's one way of doing it. That's the best way of doing it. We simply apply the brightness-luminosity relationship, plug in the distance, and I know, oh, that's how luminous it really is. The problem is we don't have the distances to a lot of stars. So there's a second way we can do this. And that is to use a distance-independent property of that star that clues me in about its luminosity. Maybe it turns out, and this is something I'm just going to plant this idea in your head now. We're going to explore this later on as we move through the course. What if it turns out that stars that are really super luminous, that are much brighter than the sun, there's something different about them. They're different. They're not just simply the sun turned up in brightness. There's actually something intrinsically different for why they're so much brighter. And does that why they're so much brighter manifest itself in a way that's distance independent? Maybe it has something to do with its color or not. Maybe it has some weird property like it pulsates in some way that the sun does not. So one of the things we're going to be looking for is we'd love to know the distance, but as I pretty much emphasized in the last couple of lectures, distances are really hard to measure. We don't have distances to everything in the universe. So another way of playing this is it really luminous, yes or no, is to start keeping our eyes open as we begin to explore different types of stars and objects. Is there some intrinsic property that's distance independent that clues me in? The analogy is the light bulb, right? I can look at a light bulb and say, well, it's either a bright bulb far away or a faint bulb nearby. But there's a distance independent property, the label inscribed on the top, that I can read off, because I can read English and I know how to interpret 100W as 100 watts, that's a distance independent secondary property that clues me in. Oh yeah, that's, just, that's a big bulb, but it's just far away. Can we do the same thing for stars? I, I got through saying, oh, stars don't have a Westinghouse or GE label on them. But maybe there's something that acts like that on some stars, not all stars. So we're going to keep ourselves, our eye open, for those distance independent clues that might help us figure out what the brightness of a star really is. So that's all the basic principles. Let's get down to practical aspects. How do we actually go about this measurement? Now obviously there's a qualitative measurement, right? You can walk outside, hey, you can do this, you can walk outside, look up the sky and say, yeah, 
That star looks bright, that star looks faint. You're making a judgment call. You're making a qualitative estimate. Okay, yeah, that one's definitely got more light coming up from that one. But what if we want to really quantify this? Well, this practice of measuring how bright something is has a name, because what we really want to measure is the number of photons coming from it. Because ultimately, as we saw last week, the brightness of a source is a measure of how many photons it's putting out. If I count the number of photons of a given color, a source that's two times brighter will be producing exactly two times more photons of that same color. So this process of measuring the light from an object we call photometry, literally light measurement. So how do we do this trick of light measurement? Well, there's two ways in astronomy that we have come to express measurements of the brightnesses of stars, how we quantify stellar brightness. One of these ways is as a system called stellar magnitudes. It began, as we'll see in a moment, as a qualitative estimate, but got quantified in the 19th century. It's actually very commonly used in astronomy. Your book actually uses stellar magnitudes on some of its diagrams and sections. The other way we can do it is to measure what's called the absolute flux the actual amount of energy per second per area flowing through my eye or some detector. Now, eyes are great detectors, right? They're, they're cheap, they have, good, they have really good um, spectral coverage, they can see red light, blue light, green light, they have autofocus mechanism that works, you know, most times it works, um, sometimes it needs a little extra optics to help it out. They can be mass produced with unskilled labor and they come connected to an extremely sophisticated image processing system. The problem is, I don't know how to get those numbers out of my brain. I can say, yeah, that looks bright. But I can't say, oh yes, there's 150,127 photons coming from that light. There's just no way I can plug a little wire into my brain and dump those numbers into a computer. So using the eye is a good way to start, but it has some problems actually using those numbers. So how do we actually go about doing this? Now it turns out that astronomers use either absolute fluxes or magnitudes interchangeably. There's certain contexts in which magnitudes are very computationally convenient and nice to use, like measuring the brightnesses of stars. And there's other places like spectroscopy and certain types of physical measurements where fluxes matter. And we'll just flip between these all the time. I'll talk about flux, I'll talk about magnitude, but we're really, they're interchangeable. They're just different ways of expressing the same thing. Let's start with magnitudes. Magnitudes is actually the original way of measuring stellar brightnesses. And it goes back to the days before electronics. In fact, it goes all the way back to the year 300 BC, probably earlier. There are probably earlier systems for expressing star brightnesses, but it actually got sort of made semi-quantitative by the famous Hipparchus of Nicaea. This is the same person who um, observed first observed procession of the equinoxes that we know of. He was the greatest astronomer of antiquity. And he also made a very large star catalog where he quantified the brightnesses of stars. And what he did was essentially to do a ranking exercise. Right? Now, this is an example of what we'll call a semi-quantitative way of approach. For example, like ranking something. I can line people up and I can say, okay, I want to sort everybody by shortest person to tallest person in the room. Now, I can do that qualitatively. You sort of all sort yourselves in a line until you get a nice little sort of ramp of people, tall people on the left, short people on the right. I can quantify that by going around with a ruler and actually measuring your, bright, your height physically. But if I simply sort you in order from short person to tall person, and then I can sort of divide that group into three ranks. All right, this third, you're all short people. This group, you're all medium people. And these people, you're the tall people. Football, you know, basketball stadiums, over that way. Go for it. That's a ranking. It's a semi-quantitative ranking. I call them first rank short, second rank middle, 
third rank tall. Then I might find that maybe three divisions isn't enough, so I might have really short people, short people, middle people, kind of big people, really big people. Those are semi-quantitative ranks, and I could give someone a number. Yeah, they look like they're between, they're not really short, but they're not exactly short, short either, so maybe they're kind of a 1.5 if one is really short and two is just short. So you can see how you can kind of turn that into an, that ranking, that qualitative ranking, into a kind of number. In fact, this is what Hipparchus did. He looked up in the sky and said, well, you know, those stars are all, they're the brightest stars you ever see. And those stars, those are the stars you can just barely see with your eye. So he divided the sky into six ranks. Actually, he used five, but six turns out to be the lowest in the ultimate system. The very brightest stars he called the first rank stars. They are of the first magnitude of brightness. The very faintest stars he could see were of the sixth magnitude of brightness. And then all divisions in between. So the very brightest stars went into the first rank. The kind of next brightest stars went into the second rank. Middling bright went into the third rank. And fifth rank was kind of the last. And sixth rank was those that under just the right conditions you could see or not. Just barely. So, for example, when you look at the seven sisters, the Pleiades, the faintest stars in the Pleiades are kind of in that fifth and sixth rank. You need very good conditions to see all seven of the seven sisters. So Hipparchus used this. It was a semi-quantitative way of doing it, but it's very convenient. He could then say, here's a list of all the first magnitude stars, here's a list of all the second magnitude stars, and so forth. And just simply saying first, second, third, fourth, fifth was good enough for most of antiquity. By the 19th century, it was no longer good enough, and people began to make subdivisions of this. And eventually, they developed something called the modern magnitude system. What they did was to take the semi-qualitative, semi-quantitative method of Hipparchos and turn it into a purely quantitative way of measuring. They said that five steps of magnitude corresponded to a factor of 100 in brightness. For those of you who do mathematics, this is an example of a logarithmic system. You now count things as powers of 10 rather than as 1, 2, 3, 4. The reason for using powers of 10 is, in fact, the whole range from the brightest star we can see to the faintest star we can see covers more than a factor of 300 in intrinsic brightness. So the logarithmic step is simply saying that for every five steps of magnitude, I go up a factor of 100 in brightness. It also works in the direction that the bigger the magnitude, the fainter the star. Because remember, it was originally a quality rank. First ranked brightest, second ranked second brightest, third ranked third brightest. Astronomers love this. We call this the secret astronomer's handshake because our brightness system works backwards and it drives the physicists nuts. So the bigger the number, the fainter the star. And we use a single star as defining the zero of our magnitude system. We're going to pick a star and say that star is zero with magnitude. Doesn't mean it isn't bright, it's the brightest star, it's called Vega. Actually, it's not the brightest star, it turns out the brightest star is Sirius. But Vega has been chosen as a zero magnitude star. The reason why Vega was chosen, it was easily visible from all over the northern hemisphere. This is a very northern ocentric system and can be easily measured because it's a simple naked eye star in the constellation of Lyra. So some examples of how this works. A tenth magnitude star is five magnitudes different from a fifth magnitude star. So a tenth magnitude star is a hundred times fainter than a fifth magnitude star. A twentieth magnitude star is ten magnitudes different from a tenth magnitude star. That's two fives, so ten hundred times a hundred, or ten thousand. So a twentieth magnitude star is, is ten thousand times fainter 
than a tenth magnitude star. You get a factor of 100 for each step of 10. There's an analog to this. How many of you know the word decibels in terms of a unit of sound? Decibels work similarly. 10 decibels turns out to be a factor of 100. Okay? So the way I used to always explain this to my father, who was an engineer, a magnitude was 2 decibels. It seemed to work for him. How far does it go? Well, the faintest stars we've ever measured to date are around the 30th magnitude. Okay? So that means these are stars that are 30 magnitudes is 6 steps of 5. So that's 100 to the 6th power, or that's a trillion times fainter than Vega. So the brightest, sort of the typical walk outside in the summer night, that really bright star up there in the middle of the Milky Way, that's Vega. That's zero. The faintest stars we've measured to date using the Hubble Space Telescope are about 30th magnitude. They cover a billion in brightness. And this is why magnitudes are so computationally convenient. I've taken something which is a trillion, a scale of a trillion times different in brightness, and I've compressed it into a two-digit number between zero and 30. So I don't have to carry all those stupid zeros around. I don't have to carry those powers of 10 around. I simply carry a number between 0 and 30. There's other bits of computational convenience that it gets into, but they're not useful to us in this class because we're not going to actually compute with magnitudes. But I want to introduce it because it's used a lot to express the brightest star. Oh, yeah, that's a fifth magnitude star. That's a 15th magnitude star. You should go, okay, 15th, 5. Okay, that's two steps of five, so 100 times 100, that's 10,000 times fainter than a fifth magnitude star. It's 100,000 times fainter than can be seen with the naked eye. So you can, that's what the beauty of the system is. I can just do that calculation like that. If someone came up to you and told you that the faintest star you could see with the naked eye was approximately one photon per square centimeter per second at 5,000 angstroms, that didn't help much. But saying, oh, zeroth magnitude is the brightest star you see in the summer sky, the faintest thing you see is 100 times fainter, that's an easy way to do it. It's a relative measurement relative to Vega. Some questions about this? Yes, sir? If Vega is zero and Sirius is brighter, what would Sirius It's about minus 1.5. This is the other part that really gets the physicists mad. A super bright star has a negative magnitude. Wonder what the sun is? The sun's magnitude, apparent magnitude, as seen from the Earth, is minus 26. So the total range of the magnitude system at present goes from the sun, about minus 26 at visible wavelengths, to plus 30, the faintest things in the Hubble Space Telescope. That's 56 steps of magnitude. That's 10 steps of 5 plus an extra 2. So 10 steps of 5 is 100 to the 10th or 10 to the 20. And I can do the other bit of math in my head. That's 6 and a quarter times 10 to the 20 range in brightness between the sun and the faintest star we've ever seen. So to express it in fluxes, total number of photons, I'd need numbers like 10 to the 20, you know, 10 to the 20 mumbles. But in magnitudes, I go from minus 26 to 20, 30. It's very nice. Yes, in the back there. No, because it's five steps is 100. It's not squaring the magnitude. I haven't squared anything yet. Squaring distance, that's different. Magnitude is saying five steps of magnitude is a factor of 100 in brightness. It's what's called a logarithmic scale. If you really want to know what it is, it's minus 2.5 times the log base 10 of the flux. I'm sorry, I used that math in a sentence. Uh, yeah, there are ways to do a computing, don't worry about it. 
Don't worry about the details. Any other questions about magnitudes? It's an old system, but it serves us really well. And like I said, it drives my physicist friends nuts. Wait a minute, your system is backwards. Bigger numbers are fainter. And, and it's this logarithmic interval, it isn't 10. And I go, yeah, it isn't. So it's a secret astronomer's handshake. We all know the code. And we can flip around magnitudes, and the physicists' or brains explode. It's great. Every, every, every field's got to have its own little sort of you know, secret, weird tradition. Ours goes back 2,300 years. Hmm. You know, so... <laughs> It's always fun with these nouveau sciences, you know. Yeah, ours is older. All right. Well, that's, that's how you do it. Now, one of the advantages, of course, of, of magnitude system is you can do it by eye. You can say, well, how bright does it appear relative to Vega? I've never said how many photons are coming from Vega yet. But ultimately, I really would like to know how many photons come from Vega. And you can measure it, and it has been done, through a process called flux photometry. This is where you actually count the number of photons coming from a star using a brightness-dependent, using a light-sensitive detector. Okay, I need something that actually collects light and counts the number of photons. Now, there's a lot of ways in which I can do this. Okay, let's see if I can remember which button I'm supposed to hit. Come on. Wake up. Wakey, wakey. Silly camera. Oh man, it was working before. Blank camera, document camera, plug in the video. Come on. Wake up. Huh. Darn. I know what happened. <laughs> the projector. Remember it's all the old projector blank? That's the, you haven't loved me for a while, and so it decides to go turn itself off. So we'll give it about 50 seconds to turn on. While it's doing that, you need a device that can count photons. The way you can count photons is you can use a photograph, look up on the right. You can count photons using photographic plates. This is a way of actually collecting and storing the photons in a convenient fashion, which you can then go back and count later rather than using the eye. And it started in about the 1880s. That was the first application of, of photography. And it's continued on really until the 1960s and 1970s. Maybe into the 80s there was a bit of photography and then it faded out. And the reason it faded out is because of the rise of electronics and especially computers. Outstanding. You can use devices called photoelectric photometers, photomultiplier tubes. These were invented shortly before World War II, became into real use after World War II, and lasted pretty much through the 1990s. By the 1990s, however, we began to have the first generation of really good silicon-based light detectors, in particular devices called CCDs. These are extremely sensitive. A photographic plate can roughly collect one out of every thousand or few thousand photons that strike it. A photoelectric tube could maybe collect 10 or 15 out of 100. The very best modern silicon detectors can detect 95% of all photons that strike it. So they're extremely sensitive. In fact, if any of you have got a little camera inside your telephone or you've got a digital camera, those are CCD detectors. They're just everywhere these days. I'll give you some examples of how this stuff works. Let me give you some examples of different media. Up on the document camera there, I have an example of a photographic plate. This is actually a photograph that I took back in, well, I can actually tell you when I took it. I took it in uh, 1985, in November, from a 36-inch telescope at Lick Observatory called the Crosley Telescope. It took a piece of glass. It's actually a little sheet of glass. I'll just hold it up here for a second. Wave it a bit. It's a sheet of glass with a photographic emulsion on it. It was exposed for about 30 minutes. 
So I had to sit there and track on the object, collecting photons for 30 minutes, and I got a little picture of the Crab Nebula. It's a photonegative picture. And I took it down, and I had to play with all kinds of darkroom chemicals. And I got, you know, all kinds of stinky stuff on my fingers, and I got this picture. Each of the stars on here, I could measure their brightnesses. A bright star makes a dark patch. A fainter star makes a little fainter patch. And there are hundreds of stars whose brightnesses I could measure on here. And this little pattern over here on the side tells me is a, what's called a, a grayscale. It told me how to translate darkness on the plate to brightness. It's actually a set of graded little filters, so I can turn amount of darkness on the plate into brightness of light that hit the plate. The more photons that hit the plate, the more chemicals do their little flip, and when you run them through the chemicals, make a darker spot. Photography is really cool in many ways. It's a big area detector. You can see sort of how big it is. It's about a two by three inch sheet of glass. The largest of these were 18 inches on the side, 18 inch sheets of like window pane glass that could image six degrees of the sky on a side in one shot as part of the so-called Palomar Sky Survey. It also has the advantages, it's also its own storage medium. If I want to look at the plate, I simply take it out of its envelope and look at it with a magnifying glass and measure it any time I want. So it not only collects the photons, it stores them. The problem is, it's fearsomely inefficient. What you really want to use are electronics. In this case, be careful not to drop my precious plate, we have this nifty device called, just give a second, got to change lights here. This is basically a photo tube. Let me zoom out a little bit. It's called a photomultiplier tube. Please don't roll off the table there. Photomultiplier tube basically has a little detector set up in the front when a photon strikes it, it makes an electron. The electron is drawn by an electric current down into the system that makes a spray of electrons. And out of one of these pins, a little pulse of electricity comes out. So every photon makes a pulse of electricity. As each photon hits, I count the pulses. So I count the number of pulses that hit during a second. I've counted the number of photons per second. So this is a photon counting device. One, two, three, four. The problem with it is it doesn't take a picture. It just simply collects all photons that hit its face. So all I can do is measure the total number of photons from a source. I can't actually do much with that. So that's why we switched to silicon, which is far more sensitive. And we use devices nowadays, like this little doodad, called a CCD. This is actually a dead version of the CCD. An actual CCD, if I brought it real, would cost about, oh, this particular model would cost us about $60,000, and they wouldn't let me bring it to class. This one's a dead electrical sample. This thing consists of 3,000 by 1,000 little tiny silicon sensors. Each position records the amount of light that falls on it. And so like a photographic plate, a picture of a galaxy might form itself here with a bunch of stars. And then these pins allow me to hook it into a computer and read out the image and form an electronic image. So it collects the light, but I store the image digitally. That means I can put it on the web. I can manipulate it with computers. I can see, measure the detail, count the number of photons that fell in that pixel underneath those stars versus that pixel under those. These devices are extremely efficient. In fact, CCDs are now the premier device for observing objects now in the sky. This is, in fact, all the stuff we do with CCDs now is done with silicon. Everything's done with silicon these days. The biggest CCD Ohio State's ever built is 4,000 by 4,000 pixels on a side, a 16 megapixel camera, 
For the new spectrometer we're building, we're looking at something close to a 100 megapixel camera. And there's a couple projects and other observatories referred to as the TerraPix project. They're going for a trillion pixels with bunches of these ganged together, stapling together to form a gigantic, literally going to form an array of silicon. They're going to tile the back of the telescope with silicon. So here's another example of how we package one of those cameras up. It's an electronic camera, hooks into a, literally this particular model hooks into a USB port into a laptop. That's how much the technology has changed. And then you stick it here on the back, this is a different model, stuck on the back of a telescope where you would normally be putting your eye in the old days. And this is how we do photometry. We simply take pictures of the sky with electronic cameras. We compare the brightnesses of stars we see to brightnesses of known stars, and we actually come up with measurements of the brightnesses of the stars. So what do we do with this? Well, the goal of this is not just simply to say, oh, yes, that star is 15 times brighter than that star, but to actually get some idea of what's physically going on. So the goal here is to take that apparent brightness, the observable. We observe it using this process of photometry with CCDs and all other kinds of fun little technologies. Count the number of photons. That's how bright it appears to me at my telescope on the Earth. I then come up with some measurement of the distance to that star, and I convert it into a luminosity by turning that brightness-luminosity relationship on its head. The luminosity is simply 4 pi times the distance squared times the brightness to the source. So if I want to know the brightness, the luminosity, I need to measure the apparent brightness with photometry and estimate the distance and square it. Now. The biggest source of uncertainty in this whole game is not our brightness measurement, but our distance estimate. Because a brightness estimate is just simply technology limited. My ability to collect those photons and count them up accurately. The real problem is knowing that distance. As always in astronomy, that's really what the practical issue comes down to. I can measure, in fact, we have, not me personally, but astronomers to date, have measured the apparent brightnesses of many millions of stars, and it's very quickly approaching about 10 billion with the end of the large digital sky surveys. But we only have good distances through parallaxes for about 100,000 stars. So my ability to measure stellar brightnesses far outstrips my ability to measure their distances, and therefore I don't have that many stellar luminosities. Direct estimates of stellar luminosity are still pretty rare, relatively speaking, and they don't cover all possible stars. So one of the problems we have in astronomy is how we bridge those gaps. And one of the things we'll explore as we go through various stages in this class is how those gaps are bridged and where the limits of that knowledge is. In particular, here's something I want to leave you with. The luminosity depends upon the distance squared when I try to convert the observed apparent brightness to a luminosity. Because it goes like the square, a tiny error in the distance adds up to a big error in the luminosity. Because it's squared, a 10% distance will only give me a 20% luminosity. So you can already see the problem there. What really is the fight is not how I count those photons. We've solved that problem, but how I beat down the imprecision on my distance estimates. If all I got to 10% distance, all I'm going to get is a 20% luminosity. So we need ways to do better, and we're going to see at various places where that difference matters. Any questions? All right, I'll see you all tomorrow then.